Mother's Day seemed like a good opportunity to launch into a, a brand new series, which we're going to do today. I'm very excited. The series is inspired uh, by women in the Bible. These women have, are, are people who display such resilience and strength and courage in the face of overwhelming obstacles and circumstances. My prayer in all of this is that this is not just a series for women. We're not at a women's conference here, but this is a series where all of us, men, women, fathers, mothers, kids, anybody, is going to be inspired by these women. Um, we're going to be shaped by their stories. One of the things that all these women that we're going to look at over the next few weeks have in common is that these are people who live on the margins you know what I mean by mar they live on the margins? We use that word today like uh, people who are oppressed will say that they are marginalized. They are pushed to the edges of, of society, of culture, their community. People whom, these are people whom the world around them doesn't really put much hope in. Or if they even notice them at all, they're on the margins. And yet we see in Scripture such tales of, of courage and fortitude uh, in the face of injustice and poverty and public shame, uh, these women have become some of my very favorite characters in all of Scripture. And so today, we are going to start with a woman from the Old Testament. It's been a while since we've been in the Old Testament. Uh, it's going to be fun. By the name of Hagar. Hagar. And uh, by the way, the artwork over here is by a an incredible talented artist by the name of Sarah Beth Baca, uh, who has graciously allowed us to use her artwork before when we've uh, preached a message on women. She has a, a series uh, of paintings called Women in the Bible. She's a local girl and uh, just a really great artist. You can uh, Google her and uh, buy all her stuff. Uh, so really beautiful things. And this is her depiction of Hagar. Brilliant, brilliant. Now let me say this. Uh, if you happen to be here this morning and uh, if you're not already familiar, <coughs> excuse me, with this story of Hagar, I'm going to warn you, this is a, uh, a painful story. This is, uh, to say it's an emotionally complex, painful story is kind of an understatement. <clears throat> it grates against all of our notions of fairness and justice and slavery and abuse. Um, there are no really squeaky clean heroes in this story, um, but rather what we have is, is a, <clears throat> a bunch of broken people in a broken world who are trying to do their very, very best. They're desperately trying to do what seems right to them in the context of the world that they live in. But what we're going to find is, ultimately, we're going to find revealed is a loving God in the midst of this story, a God who pursues us no matter who we are, no matter where we've come from or how insignificant we've been made to feel. Uh, so I'm excited about this story. But as I said, it, is, it, is, it is, uh, has some rough elements to it. Um, and just in case there are some kids in here, I will try to sanitize and euphemize my language uh, a bit uh, to keep it PG, um, if you know what I mean. But we don't, we don't want to gloss over what is actually happening here. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them up or turn them on to Genesis chapter 16. Our story opens on two very famous figures. That's Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah. And at the time of this story, they're still called Abram and Sarai. Uh, God changes their names at a later date. Um, I'll probably just keep calling them Abraham and Sarah because it just 
feels pretentious to say Abram and Sarai. Um, so don't be confused. And, uh, but just before the scene that we're going to look at, just before this has happened, to give you context, God has just promised Abraham to, to bless him with so many children. It'll be like the, his descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And so even though Abraham is getting really up there uh, in, in years, he still doesn't have any children. But God promises that Abraham will have a son and it'll be his own flesh and blood. Now, what we'll notice if you go back and look at that promise that God made, he doesn't say, <coughs> excuse me, that the child will be of Sarah's flesh and blood. He specifically mentions Abraham, but her name is not mentioned in the promise at this point. And so Sarah is also getting quite old and she doesn't seem to be able to have any children. And so what we're going to see go down here, excuse me, I'm just going to put one of these in my mouth here so I don't keep coughing. What we're going to see here in this story is not necessarily an example of, of a case of Sarah doubting God. It's not really a case of her rebelling against God's plan. As far as she knows, what she's wanting to do is be proactive. She is saying, hey, maybe this is how God's going to bring about this promise, Abraham. Maybe this is how he's going to give you a son. Let's not wait passively. Let's partner with God to bring this thing about. So we'll give her the benefit of the doubt. Interestingly, too, uh, God never rebukes them uh, for the decision that they're about to make here, but he does later correct them, and he does eventually let Sarah know that, yes, this promised child will be yours. It'll be Sarah's as well as Abraham's. And so he lets them know that later. But here in chapter 16, which we're about to start reading, they don't know that yet. And Sarah gets an idea, a great and terrible idea. Uh, we'll start with verse one. Now, Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. By the way, that's not true. The Lord hasn't kept her from having children, <coughs> as we're going to see. It just hadn't happened yet. And we've talked about this before. This is a time uh, in the evolution of theology here among the Jewish people when they believed everything that happened was the direct action of the Lord. So if you didn't have kids, it's because the Lord kept you from having kids. She says, so go and sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Now, this was actually a common practice, it turns out, in the ancient Near East. Um, if a couple couldn't have children, a slave could be forced into a kind of a, to be a kind of a surrogate mother in the relationship. It's, I know it's right out of like the handmaid's tale, um, but this is how things were. And this is the position that Hagar, the slave, is placed in. It was common practice at the time. <clears throat> it sure doesn't make it the right practice, but it was the common practice. I'll just add this too. This is a great example of what we're reading today, again, of, of how God accommodates. God accommodates us out of his grace. That God doesn't just strike the world dead is like amazing, right? Like some of the practices that are going on. But he accommodates people. He will work inside the context of what seems right in a culture, in, in an age that they live in, even when later we find out that he never approved of it. We see exact examples of this. We won't go into them all, but Jesus points out examples. God never approved of all this stuff, right? 
And we find out later that in God's kingdom, this kind of thing doesn't fly and there's no place for it. And so for us, I feel like it's, it's good to have a bit of humility that we too, we can buy into a lot of cultural practices today, cultural norms that may seem right, but they may not be God's best. They may not be God's best, but God still shows up and he blesses us anyway because he's gracious. He meets us where we're at. And then he begins to open our eyes to the way of love, the way of the kingdom. He meets us where we're at on an individual level as well as a whole societal level. And we really see so, so many examples of that in the Bible. So as we're reading this text, it's important. To, we, we often find things that are not God's idea, but God will still use what are our ideas and even our bad ideas to bring about blessing. We, met, we mess up. God blesses anyway. It's just his MO. But it's never an excuse for us to say, well, okay, well then um, let's just keep messing up, right? Or God let us do it once. Let's just keep doing it. Because if we truly desire today as Christians to be more like Jesus, that's what Christians are people. We're people who try to be more like Jesus. If we truly desire that, we should always be asking, what is the love ethic of Jesus call us to do? What is love calling us to do? What's the, that's going to be, that's going to lead us to the right choice, okay? So notice Sarah says, perhaps I can build a family through her. It's really interesting. So in this culture, it would still be considered Sarah's child, even if her slave girl gives birth to the baby. So again, we don't want to sugarcoat what is happening here to poor Hagar. I mean, she is not only the victim of slavery already, that's bad enough, but she's a victim of abuse, uh, she's an abuse of power. She's being used for her fertility, for birth. In the end, she doesn't even have any guarantees that she'll get to raise her own child because it'll be Sarah's child. It's a horrific situation anyway you slice it. Sarah says to Abraham, take my Egyptian slave Hagar and maybe she'll have a child. We'll consider it my own. Uh, maybe this is how God wants to bring about his plan. So Abraham is like, Okie dokie. And verse 3, after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years. So they've been waiting for 10 years for God to give them a child. Uh, so you can see why maybe they think, maybe there's something more we should be doing here. Um, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar, gave her to her husband to be his wife. So there is a formal sort of giving in a sort of marriage here. But Sarah is fully in charge. Uh, so that Hagar will represent her in this whole childbearing process. Meanwhile, keep in mind, Hagar has no say in this at all. He slept with Hagar and she conceived, and when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Yeah, you might. You might start to despise. <laughs> yeah. So Hagar takes, it, it kind of insinuates here that Hagar begins to take a, at least a small bit of pleasure here, um, because she has this thing now over her master, Sarah. Because in that culture, uh, bearing children was the, the woman's highest value. That was the highest thing. And so Sarah is being, of course, she's feeling diminished here. And I got to tell you, my heart goes out to everybody in this story, including Sarah. Her, her sense of self-worth is just being crushed over time. She's got to be thinking, do I have any value? Do I matter? And then Hagar is victimized in this whole process 
But then she finds this some morsel of pride here, and at least I now have a child, and, and you don't. So there's a little bit, you know, maybe some passive-aggressive emotional payback going on here, and Sarah's in pain over this. By the way, I will point out this too, because um, I love to do asides and get off track. Um, the highest calling when we read the Old Testament of a woman, it was make babies, right? That's what you were on the earth to do. That, was, that wasn't even just an Israelite uh, cultural fact that most of the societies there believed that was the purpose of women, make babies. And the purpose of men was be with as many women as possible and make babies. It was, it was, it was make babies, make babies. Um, I just like to remind people we live in the New Testament. Um, in case you forgot, we don't live under the Old Covenant. We live in a New Testament, a New Covenant. We live in a kingdom of God has come. Jesus has announced this kingdom. And Jesus very clearly, when he was on the earth and he was about to ascend to heaven, he even recalled using some Genesis language to give us a whole new set of marching orders and told us, hey, you know, it was about making babies. You know what it's about now? Making babies disciples. So if you're a woman here today, if you're a man here today, your highest calling on this planet is making disciples. Okay? Babies are great. Make the babies, whatever you want to do. Adopt the babies, have babies. But we're called to make disciples. Amen? Amen. Just a little extra there. That's for free. You don't even have to pay for it. Okay, number five. Verse five. Then Sarah said to Abraham, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. <laughs> Welcome to marriage. <laughs> Isn't that the case? When, when we are in pain, ooh, it is so easy to find the fault in the other person, anybody except for ourselves. I find I do that. We are like wounded animals. You ever try to treat, help a wounded animal? First thing they want to do is bite you, right? If we're hurting, we want to lash out. It just seems to be human nature. When life is difficult, we want to place blame anywhere else. Why? To, to preserve our ego, our preserve our self-esteem, our pre preserve our sense of blamelessness. But to be able, when you're in a marriage or you're in any relationship, even relationships between friends or something like that, to be able to get to the point of saying, wait, 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 what was my role in this? Let me start there. Not, this is what you've done, but let me start with where have I helped push this thing on us? What have I done to... This is something husbands and wives can learn by not following uh, Sarah's exact example lead here. Uh, there's something Bible scholars else, uh, have also pointed out here that the writer of this story is doing something very clever. I find this so beautiful. The, the writer is writing this in such a way so that the reader will be reminded of another story that happened about 13 chapters earlier in the Garden of Eden. Every point of the story is such an interesting, has a parallel here. And, and there in the garden was Eve who said, I've got to take matters into my own hands. I've got to solve a problem here, right? Apparently there's good and evil. We don't know anything about it, right? God is distant. He's holding out on us. He's holding out on us, and i got to bridge the gap. i got to do something. I'm going to take action, and, and then I'm going to make my husband go along with the plan, right? And in Adam, there again, you see another husband 
who is totally passive in the story. If you remember that story, he doesn't engage in any kind of partnership, which is what a healthy marriage looks like, right? Other than to say, you know, yes, dear. That's, that's just, that's the husband. All they know how to do is say, yes, dear. Yes, dear. And the moral of both of these stories, by the way, isn't, ah, well, look what happens when, you know, men aren't in charge. Uh, because, by the way, the entirety of human history is one long, bloody, violent history story of the man being in charge. Uh, no, 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 no. The antidote to passivity isn't just the binary choice of, well, who's going to be in charge? The antidote to passivity is partnership. The antidote to passivity is partnership, right? Again, let me just remind you, we're a New Testament people. The New Covenant. We live in a kingdom of Christ. We don't, we're, we're not calling upon spouses to be passive, but to be partners. But in Abraham, just like Adam, he plays the passive do-nothing in this story, right? The spouse brings him whatever, and he just goes along with it. And notice what follows in both of these stories after this happens and after back in uh, the early Genesis, back in the garden, what happens after they sin? Accusation, blaming each other, right? The shame game. It's the exact same thing that happens in Genesis chapter 3. Adam, what's going on? Oh, it's that woman you brought me, right? Eve, what's going on? It's that serpent you led in the garden. Um, He's the one blaming anybody but ourselves. But it's when we are secure and rooted in our own value to God that we can actually then start by saying, okay, here's how I messed up. I'm not struggling for my self-esteem because I know I get that from God. I don't have to prove my self-esteem in this argument. I don't have to prove that I'm better than you. I can say that I messed up and that can be my starting point, right? And I can fully admit the part that I played. Either that I I railroaded you into this decision or I completely relinquished my role as being a partner in all this. So nobody in this little love, can't call it a love triangle, it's just a weird triangle between Hagar and Abraham and Sarah. Nobody's responding in love, right? Sarah's, she's angry and vindictive. Hagar seems to be showing some revenge and vindictiveness here. Abraham just wants to keep out of it, other than the sleeping with people part. He's happy to engage in that part. He says in verse 6, here's Abraham, your slave is in your hands. Abraham said, do with, do with her whatever you wish, right? He's like, ah, that's, that's your jurisdiction. I don't want anything to do with it, except for the sleeping part, right? That's Abraham, passive role. There's this whole lot of failure going on in this story. We can see it at every moment, can't we? Just boom, failure after failure. The abuse, the relational dysfunction, the slavery, power dynamics, the emotional head games. And then Abraham's just sort of his whole apathy about the whole thing. says, then Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. So for Hagar, apparently the, uh, the abuse finally gets to be too much. And she runs away. We don't know if it was, you know, emotional abuse or physical abuse or what was happening, but she's finally like, I'm out. I'm out of here. She runs. uh, We kind of learn clues later. She's kind of running towards Egypt. She's really running back home. And um, remember, she's pregnant. So it's doubtful she would even live, survive the trip through the desert. Uh, But she is so desperate at this point 
that she just runs. She has to get away from this mistreatment. And so Hagar flees. But then, now our story kind of gets good. In verse 7, the angel of the Lord. Hmm. Here's what's fascinating. This is the first time in Scripture that the angel of the Lord makes an appearance to someone in the Bible. The first time the angel of the Lord comes to somebody. This particular phrase is very special too because angel of the Lord, angel in the Hebrew, the word just means messenger. It's a messenger. He's the one who brings the word. He's the word of the Lord. He's the word bringer of Yahweh. And it, usually this phrase, the angel of the Lord, refers to a very particular messenger. Because uh, we see angels before. But this one is very different than other angelic appearances. When the angel of the Lord makes an appearance in Scripture, something very strange always happens. Uh, all grammar, geography, like relational locality, spin-off course. It's like you were in Doctor Who land all of a sudden when the angel of the Lord speaks. Because often this angel will speak as though he is a messenger representing God. And then, and then he'll flip and speak as though this is God. Something else is interesting that usually when angels uh, appear other places in the scripture, they always refuse worship. You know, people just be like, oh, it's an angel. And they'll start trying to worship. And the angel will be like, no, 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 you only worship God. Don't worship me. But the angel of the Lord is often worshiped and receives it. He receives it. The angel of the Lord speaks as though the angel is God. The angel of the Lord receives worship and behaves as though it's God. He's treated and honored as though God, and yet somehow distinct from God, yet is God. So what do we do with that? Hmm, can you imagine who this figure might be? There are clues that are given to us. In verse 7, he says, The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. And it was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. The spring later in the chapter is called a well. So keep up with me here. There's this well where a messenger, the word bringer of the Lord, finds her and he breathes life into her and he compassion and he honors her. And here is a woman with a compromised past, challenging life situation, both sexually and relationally, who is an outcast from her society, living on the margins. She's by herself. She's at a well. God finds her, has this intimate conversation with her, reveals more of himself than he has to anybody else thus far in the story. Does that remind you of any other story in the Bible? Amen. This is the original woman at the well story. Jesus repeats this whole scene in John chapter 4. And you start to realize this is just what God does. He's just doing what God does. God finds the outcasts. He pursues them. And when he finds them, he doesn't just say, I'm here to save you and save the day. You know, uh, he actually says, let me share my heart with you. Let me reveal to you in a way you don't understand who I really am. Reveal things about himself. And we're about to see how intimate it gets here. So this messenger of the Lord asks her a question. He says, Hagar, slave of Sarah, where have you come from? And where are you going? Where have you come from and where are you going? 
These are powerful questions. These are like identity building questions. He's asking her here, where have you come from and where are you going? Now, God knows the answers, obviously. So he's not in the dark, but he wants to help her locate herself in the story. He wants her to know herself. What are you running from, Hagar? What are you running towards? Let's just, let's just admit everything going on, Hagar. Let's just get it all on the table. Let's just be open about what's happened to you. Because, see, God knows our experiences. He knows sometimes better than we know ourselves. And, and, and when we're living in the middle of these things, we make these decisions all the time. We're making these decisions every day, heading in all kinds of directions. Sometimes they don't even make any sense. And sometimes we just need to like step out and say, wait a minute, where am I in this story? Where am I coming from? Where am I going? The real question of where you're coming from, that question is, who are you? Who are you? And what am I running away from? Am I running away from something and so I'm just choosing a destination that's worse? And I'm just running from rather than running toward what God wants for my life? Uh, By the way, what does God do back there in that other story in Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve? When they, as soon as they sin, what's the first thing God does? He starts with a question. Adam, where are you? Because I see you behind that tree. I see you. But where are you? Where are you really? Do you understand that the decisions that you have made are not leading to good things? So Hagar says, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah. And verse 9 says, the angels of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. Now, that had to be a little bit hard to hear, right? That's not the thing she was probably hoping. Because sometimes when God helps us face what's happening in our own story, sometimes he may say, you need to recommit to a hard situation. For the time being, your work is not finished. Your work is not finished. Not always. This isn't a one-size-fits-all prescription. But there are times, guys, where God will say, you need to stay the course. I know this isn't, this isn't fun. You got to stay the course because to run away may be to just run towards something worse. And God knows that when we don't. So he tells us you need to do the hard thing, which is to recommit for now. Then the angel added, verse 10, I will increase. Okay, so now comes the blessing. I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. Wait a minute. Does that sound familiar? If, if we had read the chapter right before this, this is almost identical language. Yahweh begins to bless Hagar the slave woman with the same kind of blessing that up till now has been given to Abraham, the great patriarch, right? The father of like the world's three biggest religions right now, Right? It seems like this disposable side character in the story that, you know, well, we could just skip past her. No, no, no. He, she is being met by God with her own rich matriarchal blessing here. She, she's being exalted right before our eyes. 
Verse 11, the angel of the Lord, there it is again, also said to her, you're now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. Ishmael means the Lord has heard or been heard by the Lord. It's interesting. Ishmael in the Hebrew is these three little words, Yismael, which is almost identical to Yisrael, the name of Israel, which means the Lord struggles with me. Yishmael, the Lord has heard me. The Lord has heard me. The Lord says, I know, Hagar, you don't have a husband. I know you don't have a partner. Because that would be his role in this. That would normally be the husband. The husband would come and, and with the wife and they would name their child together. So this beautiful scene, this intimate scene, the Lord is saying, can I, can I step in and be that to you? Can I play the husband's role with you right now? I'd love to name your child. Just the intimacy here is so precious. And he says, let's call him the Lord has heard. That way, every time you call your child's name, you'll be reminded, you'll be reminded that I hear you. Yishmael, the Lord has heard. You'll be reminded that I hear you, that I'm your partner, that I am with you, that, I, that I'm with you. And, and you'll remember this moment. It's such a beautiful thing. This angel of the Lord, he's speaking as one who is saying, let's name our child like a husband would. Let's name him Ishmael. And then he lets her know what kind of person he's going to be. And that's where it gets interesting. He will be a wild donkey of a man. <laughs> right, so moment of intimacy, then get ready for this. Right? He's going to be a strong-willed child and grow up to be a strong-willed adult. He will be a wild donkey of a man. Scholars tell us that this is not a put-down, actually, like we would think. These wild donkeys, these were animals that were highly valued. They were treasured. They were admired. Um, for, for not only their spirit, but they were used for sacrifices. Um, what the angel is foretelling here is his nature, that he will be this sort of isolationist, nomadic nature of Ishmael's descendants. Uh, he is considered uh, traditionally as the father of the Bedouins, the f Bedouin people. And so that he, this is a man who will always roam. He'll love his freedom. He's going to live a nomadic life. You can't make him settle down. He won't like to live in the barn. He's going to be wild, right? And that ends up being true of, of the ancient Arab people, um, that they were nomadic people. And he says in verse 12, he'll be a wall donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. He will live in hostility toward all his brothers. And that phrase that live in hostility towards his brothers means literally in the, in the Hebrew, it means that he will live among them, but they won't be able to push him out. He'll live in other people's borders, but he'll just be wandering around. He won't be able to push him out. He's just going to hold his ground. He's going to hold his ground. So welcome to parenthood, strong will child coming. And then verse 13 then she gave this name to the Lord who, wait, what? What? He says, I have a name for your son. And here it is. And her response is, I have a name for you. Do you know, this is the only place in all of scripture, Old, New Testament, Hebrews, Gentiles, men, women, the only place in scripture where we see someone give God a name. Usually, God reveals his name, or he reveals his names to people.
But here, Hagar is the only person in the entire Bible who gives God a name. And she speaks it with such intimacy, like a spouse might come up with a pet name for, for the one that they love, right? Like an intimate name. She says, I've got a name for you, and it's better than sweetheart. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. I name you the God who sees me. And in the Hebrew, that's El Roi. You've, you've named my son. You're the God who hears me. I know that now. When I call his name, you hear me. And I name you the God who sees me because you get me. This is a woman who is actually seen for the first time in her whole life. You see me, you get me. I'm not just a tool for someone else's use, their agenda. I'm more than a slave. My value is greater than just my utilitarian purpose to somebody else here. You see me, you get me. I'm a real whole person. I'm like a partner to you. And she says, for I have now seen the one who sees me. I see you and you see me. This is a beautiful moment. I don't know how this passage could describe a more intimate connection than what God is engaging in with Hagar here. And it says that's why the well is called Be'er Lachai Rohi. And then it says, so Hagar bore Abraham a son and later, and they named him Ishmael. I want to I wanna finish today by bringing this back to those all-important questions that God asked Hagar. Where have you come from? And where are you going? And this morning, I just pray that the Holy Spirit is whispering that to some of us today. Where have you come from? And where are you going? Is there something that even right now you're, you're running away from? And maybe it's a situation that you're dreading, uh, you've been putting it off. Or it's a situation you feel unequipped to handle. How many of us are in those situations? You feel unequipped. Or for you, it might be a dream that just, or a calling that you've just let that dream die because you think it's never gonna happen. It's never gonna happen. My time's passed me by. It might be a relationship that's broken. You've given up thinking it'll ever be healed. And maybe we just need to stop. And today, you just need to be filled with the breath of the Holy Spirit so that you can go back and face that difficult task. But you can do it with the resilience of Hagar. Except now, you're not alone. You're not going back alone. You go in the presence of the God who sees you. You have the God who hears you with you. And you go with the joy and the peace of having God's guidance and his support. Now, please understand too, I'm not advising anyone to go back into some kind of a place of abuse. There are some relationships. How many of you know there are some relationships that situations that are just so toxic that actually the brave, resilient step of faith is to walk away. Right? That's for sure. So what I'm talking about here, though, are those situations where you know God is calling you back 
to do what you know in your heart needs to be done. What he desires you to do, the thing you've been putting off, the thing that seemed too hard to endure, that fractured relationship maybe that needs to be mended. Or maybe you've just lost sight of who you are, what your identity is. And that's what that question forces us to answer. Who are we? Oftentimes we become dissatisfied with our lives and the choices we've made. And we think what we need to do to make everything better is just, we need a change of scenery. Anybody ever be there before? I just need a change of scenery. I got to get out of here. I need to make a move. But see, in order for us to do what we were meant to do, to really accomplish what we're meant to do, we need the wisdom to know who we are. We have to know who we are. Otherwise, you know what happens? And I see this all the time. We make the mistake of setting out on some long journey to make a change only to find that we brought along with us the one thing that doesn't change. Us, right? Us, ourselves, and all of our patterns, and all of our neuroses, and all of our habits, and self-defeating habits, and patterns, and all that. I see it all the time. We, we bring along the thing that we haven't bothered to change, ourselves. And so our first instinct is to run from our problems. Quit your job, leave your wife, change churches, whatever it is, right? Move to a different city. Sometimes we're obsessed with changing our circumstances, instead of, of what needs to change up here, right? And I've been saying this for 20 years. It, what's more important to God than where you are is who you are. That's infinitely more important to God, who you are. God's way more obsessed with what's happening inside you than changing your geography. Because we think that's a shortcut to change, and it just isn't. He wants you to know what's happening inside you and change what's happening inside you and grow you up. We make all these big moves in life often and we find nothing's really changed. We're still just as unhappy, just as unsatisfied and unfulfilled because we never bother to answer these questions that God asks Hagar. Where do you come from? <coughs> Who are you? What are you really running away from? So when we make peace with that, we don't need to run from new thing to new thing to new thing, always craving something different. But the peace and the joy of the presence of God, the God who sees us and loves us, can start to change us. And then we can embark on the real journey which, that he wants to take us on, which is the journey in here. That's where he wants to take us on, a journey in here. Because God loves you. He understands you. He gets you. He wants intimate partnership with you. <coughs> you might be like Sarah today and say, I feel like I'm experiencing just the, like the death of a dream or something. I'm growing old. I haven't accomplished what I thought I would. Something's passed me by. I was hoping to have all this done by this point. I thought I would be here. I just feel like I've got, I got to do something maybe desperate to make it happen, to prove my worth. You might be like Hagar and say, I feel abused. I feel victimized. I feel unworthy. Like I don't count. I feel like I'm a minor bit character in someone else's story. Like I'm disposable. And God says, no, 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 no. I see you. You're not an extra. 
I want to work with you. I want to be your partner. And God reminds us that he has no second-rate children. He has no bit players. He loves us all. Or you might be like Abraham and say, I don't know what's going on, but whatever. And God says, no, 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 no. We can do better than that. I want to teach you how to make loving decisions, engaged decisions. You're not meant to be just an empty suit tossed around by the wind, right? And the answer isn't to become some little tyrant, like trying to get his way and change other people. To be a husband, to be a father, to be a wife, to be a mother, is to be a fully valued, fully engaged partner with Christ as our king. He should be king of all of our homes. Amen. So who are you? What are you running away from? Where all does God want to take you? Would you bow your heads with me today and let God speak to you as I pray for us today? (coughs) Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for being the God who meets with the Hagars of the world. You chase us, you pursue us. You meet us by a well to breathe life and blessing into us, into our hearts. To reveal your partnership with us in such a beautiful, intimate way. Heavenly Father, I pray for those of us who have something hard in our lives that we need to face. I pray that we would have a renewed sense of how much you value us and how you live within us and do life with us. How we're not alone. I pray that we might hear your voice today, receive your guidance, and live the life of love that you've called us to. I thank you, Lord, today for every person, especially those for whom this day, this Mother's Day, is especially hard. Thank you for being the Father God with the Mother's heart. Wrap us up in your wings today, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. (coughs) Well, stand to your feet, my friends. Uh, Our prayer partners are coming down forward now, and they are eager to pray with you about anything going on in your life, whatever is happening with you. If you have uh, any needs, uh, they would love to pray with you in faith for that. If you would like to say yes to Jesus for the first time today, what a there's no better time than right now. Just come forward and let these guys pray with you. They would love to lead you in that next step with the Lord. Amen. So my friends, may the love of the Father and may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit be with you in this day that we're living in. Grace and peace be with you. Bye-bye.